Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The UN's latest scientific assessment of climate change says there's overwhelming evidence that human activity is heating up the planet. But humans are also acting to cut greenhouse gas emissions. I think where we can see extraordinary progress is in cities around the globe. The cities have shown that it's not that difficult to reduce CO2 emissions. So where you're free from the partisan politics, you can see this actually works. Also, toads mysteriously materialize after torrential rains in the Arizona desert. It sounded like I fully expected it to be nothing but couches spade foot because of their ability to use such short-lived water. Toads and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, has finally released the first part of its fifth assessment. Every five years or so, more than a thousand scientists come together to consider the risks of human-induced climate change, its potential impacts, and the options for response. This first part looks at the latest scientific evidence. The findings on impacts and possible responses will follow next year. Professor James McCarthy, an oceanographic biologist at Harvard, was prominently involved in drafting and editing the past four IPCC reports, but is watching this one from the sidelines. I caught up with him in his lab at Harvard, where he told me that scientists have again upped their certainty about global warming, declaring that it's 95% certain human activity is causing the biosphere to warm. Everything we thought we knew about climate change, we know even better now. I mean, we have a longer record. So we've seen more change, and you can be more confident of whether or not these reflect trends linked to climate or not. Now, there's a significant portion of the scientific part of the IPCC assessment that's devoted to explaining why the rate of atmospheric warming has actually been going down. The rate, things are still increasing, of course, but the speed with which they're increasing seems to be going down. What explanations do they offer? Well, first, I think it's a mistake to focus on that. It's the surface warming. It's just one of, you know, arguably a dozen or so indicators of of climate change. For a long time, climate scientists have realized that this global average surface temperature is something that's easily expressed and perhaps most easily followed, and particularly for the non-scientists to get a sense of what's happening. But if you look at the ocean or you look at the Arctic, you see that there's no slowdown. The Arctic Ocean is continuing to lose ice. Right now, in the summer, the amount of ice in the Arctic, that is the area and its thickness, is only about one-fifth what it was in 1980. The deep ocean over the last decade has continued to accumulate heat. It shows no slowing relative to the prior few decades. The ocean is changing at depths as deep as 2,000 meters which I can tell you that when I was a graduate student working in the North Pacific, if you had told me that this would happen in my lifetime, I would have said, that seems impossible. Just think about how much heat that would be to mix it all the way to a depth of 2,000 meters. And yet we see this worldwide now. So records show us that about 90% of the additional heat that the Earth system has absorbed as a result of 
the greenhouse gases we've added is actually in the ocean. That's why I think if you get overly concerned about what surface temperature data are showing, you're missing the big picture. What are the consequences of this deep ocean warming, do you think? One of the consequences of the deep ocean warming is that it will be with us for a while. Uh, the ocean circulation moves slowly at depth, which means that it'll be hundreds of years before the ocean comes to equilibrium, which means that over that period of time, the ocean will continue as that heat mixes to expand its volume the way mercury rises in the thermometer when the air temperature warms. So this is one of the reasons that sea level rise, regardless of what we do with emissions now, will continue to rise for a long time after we stabilize emissions. Much is being made about how much more carbon we can safely burn at this point. What do you think? What, what do you see as the carbon budget for the planet? Well, this has been in the news a lot, and I think it's a very intriguing argument. The great, uh, the great paper in Rolling Stone that Bill McKibben laid this out, the great work that the carbon tracker is doing and showing that if all of the reserves that have been identified for fossil fuels that could conceivably be combusted to drive our fossil fuel economy were indeed burned, uh, the planet would be uninhabitable. And to say it's uninhabitable, well, that's an overstatement for some, but and in many cases, certainly areas that are well populated today, many of our coastal areas, will be uninhabitable. Now, this part of the report we're seeing is just a scientific assessment, but there will be policy recommendations as well. What kind of recommendations do you anticipate coming out of this assessment? One of the frustrating things about the news coverage right now, frankly, is that um, it's all about working group one, the science assessment. Working group two, which won't be out for a few months, is the so what question. So, I mean, should it really matter the earth is warming or precipitation patterns are changing? And then following that, working group three is the one that will look at policy options, uh, mitigation strategies, cost-benefit analyses. And I expect, Steve, that there will be far more specific recommendations about what could make a difference in terms of policy options than we've had in the past. So you're not in this process this time, but if you were, what would be perhaps the most important recommendation you would make or want to have in this final report? Well, I think one of the most important things to note is that we have made substantial progress in uh, the last decade. It hasn't come about as a result of international partnership or even leadership and part of, of key nations. But I think where we can see extraordinary progress is in cities around the globe. The cities have shown that it's not that difficult to reduce CO2 emissions. The city of Boston, under Mayor Menino, launched a plan in 2010 to reduce emissions in the city by 25% by 2020. It's happening. This, this was not an unrealistic target. And other cities are doing the same. So where you're free from the partisan politics, you're free from the enormous, enormous power of the fossil fuel industries that have influenced so many of our elected officials. When you have mayors who are accountable to their citizens who know they have to deliver something, you can see this actually works. To what extent do you think this latest assessment from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change will affect the international negotiations, efforts to get a big deal worldwide to deal with this? One of the parts of this report that will certainly help is its treatment of sea level rise. When we completed the 2001 IPCC report, there was no indication that 
the mass of ice in Greenland would likely change much over the next several decades. And within two or three years, we realized that that was wrong. And now that you see more clearly the contribution of ice melt from Greenland and increasingly Antarctica to sea level rise, it's possible to make a much better projection. In the 2007 assessment, the highest rates that were anticipated under the scenario that would have us burning fossil fuels, basically business as usual, continuing without any reduction in fossil fuel combustion. It's about two feet. Many studies since then, and these are what are being reflected in the new IPCC report, show that that number could be closer to three feet. And I believe that this will attract attention worldwide. And I do hope gender cooperation that we haven't seen uh, recently in the international arena on climate change. James McCarthy is professor of biological oceanography at Harvard. Thanks so much for taking this time today. Thank you, Steve, and I always look forward to your show. There are some explanatory charts and graphs on our website, LOE.org. Now, key members of the United States Congress may deny the reality of global warming and dismiss the warnings of the IPCC, but the Obama administration is continuing to implement a Supreme Court decision to regulate carbon dioxide as a pollutant. Power plants generate almost 40% of U.S. greenhouse gas pollution, and now the EPA has once again proposed a set of rules to restrict emissions from new electric power plants. UCLA environmental law professor Ann Carlson says how tough those rules look depends on the fuel that's burned. I think most people would acknowledge that for new natural gas plants, the new rules are relatively straightforward for power plant builders to meet. Coal-fired power plants are a tougher question because right now we don't have really off-the-shelf, super affordable technology that can capture a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions that coal-fired power plants emit. We do, however, have something called partial carbon capture and sequestration technology, which takes the carbon out of the air and puts it into the ground. But whether it's kind of readily available and affordable is the controversial question. Now, the Obama administration had proposed these rules for new power plants a while back, but then I gather they got concerned about what would happen when they were tested in court, and uh, this is a revision. How much of the rules changed since that first time around, and how uh, bulletproof are they against litigation, do you think? Well, the prior rules treated natural gas facilities the same as coal-fired power plants, so they were subject to the same standard. And one legal concern about that approach in the old rules was that EPA hadn't previously treated coal-fired power plants identically with natural gas plants. And so there was some thought that that was just putting them in the same category made the rules legally vulnerable. But there's another legal question that would have been leveled at the old rules and will continue to be leveled at the new rules. And that it comes back to this question of whether the technology that exists to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to the level that EPA is proposing in its rules meets the legal standard that EPA has to meet. It's called best demonstrated technology. We have captured emissions and all sorts of things previously through technology like this, but not on the kind of scale that would be necessary for a coal-fired power plant to meet the EPA rule. So this rule regards new power plants. What about existing? Uh, what will happen with rules for existing power plants? So existing power plants, I, I think I want to stress pretty strongly, is that's really the place where we can make a really significant 
impact on the greenhouse gas emissions that the United States emits. Again, because we're not likely to build very many new power plants, we simply aren't increasing demand for electricity very rapidly. The really interesting question is what happens to existing power plants? The Obama administration has made clear, and I believe it's legally required, to issue standards for existing plants. But how they do so is going to be a really big and really important question. And there are a bunch of legal reasons why it's actually complicated to predict exactly what EPA will do. On the one hand, they could take a not very aggressive approach and not require very much of existing plants, or they could interpret their authority to take into account all sorts of things that they haven't previously taken into account in establishing standards for emissions controls that include things like energy efficiency. If we could use energy efficiency to measure how much a power plant could reduce its emissions or how much a utility overall could do so, we could see rules that are really quite significant in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. So if a utility, for example, had this massive campaign and got everybody to put in uh, LEDs or compact fluorescence and uh, set up uh, smart metering so that the overall load for that polluting power plant was lower, that might count? Well, that's a question about whether it can count. Traditionally, we, we put the technology directly on the individual plant. Could we instead draft these rules in a way that is a little less rigidly focused on the plant and more focused on kind of overall electricity consumption and therefore make some choices that are actually more economical, kind of what we would call low-hanging fruit, right? Get everybody to weatherize their houses so they stop wasting electricity. Get businesses to install energy-efficient equipment. Encourage the purchase of energy-efficient appliances in apartments and houses and so forth. Can those count as rules for existing power plants? And that's really the big legal conundrum. Critics say these uh, rules, the proposed rule for new power plants, as well as the specter of one for covering existing power plants, is part of a war on coal. How do you respond to that? I view these rules as a very necessary response to the problem of climate change. And coal and the firing of coal to generate electricity is the most carbon-intensive fuel for the production of electricity. And so there's simply no way for the U.S. to dramatically cut its greenhouse gas emissions without figuring out how to make coal-fired power plants either sequester their emissions or operate in a more efficient fashion or to reduce energy consumption overall. So, you know, coal is going to have to play its part. Now, I wouldn't call that a war on coal. I'd call it a war on greenhouse gas emissions. But it is absolutely the case that coal is a carbon-intensive fuel, and we need to do something about those emissions in order to get climate change under control. And Carlson is the faculty director of the Emmett Center on Climate Change and the Environment at the UCLA School of Law. Thanks so much, Professor. You're welcome, and thanks for inviting me. Coming up, celebrating 125 years of a picture window on the world. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In a minute, searching for elusive toads in Tucson. But first, this note on emerging science from Andrew Keyes. The grass potentially just got greener for agriculture. 
Researchers have discovered a chemical in the roots of a tropical grass that may be key to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Farmers rely on nitrogen fertilizer to grow more robust crops. But plants actually make use of less than a third of the nitrogen in that fertilizer. Soil bacteria gobble up the rest and convert it to nitrous oxide, a climate-altering gas, and nitrate, a compound that washes into waterways and can cause harmful algae blooms. In the 1980s, researchers at the International Center for Tropical Agriculture in Colombia discovered a grass that grows well in low nitrogen soils, even without fertilizer. It's an African savanna grass called Brachiaria humidicola that's commonly grown as feed for livestock. This year, the scientists got to the root of why this grass flourishes with little nitrogen. A chemical in Brachiaria's roots inhibits soil bacteria from absorbing the lion's share of available nitrogen. That means more for the plant and less need for fertilizer. Brachiaria is already a popular forage grass for livestock across the tropics. Now that they understand its potential to lower emissions and save money on fertilizer, researchers hope to harness the powers of this chemical to improve crop yields of staples like rice and corn. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Andrew Keyes. Now, the U.S. monsoon, the fierce and sometimes torrential summer rains in the southwest, has dominated the news lately because of the devastating floods in Colorado. But in nearby Arizona, there's been a fairly normal amount of rainfall, creating the usual flooded streets and sudden ponds, prime breeding habitat for mosquitoes. And in the cities, local officials try to get rid of the standing water. But for some desert animals, those brief pools can mean the difference between life and death. From Tucson, Sarah Bromer has the story. I was out taking a walk one night after a summer storm in downtown Tucson when I heard a sound I'd never heard before. It kind of sounded like a flock of sheep. But that seemed unlikely given that I live only a few blocks from the center of downtown. So I followed the sound to the edge of my neighborhood where I found people gathered with flashlights. There, in a temporary drainage pond next to a shipping warehouse, were dozens of toads. Now, amphibians are pretty much the last animals you expect to find in a dry, dusty desert town like Tucson. And nobody seemed to know much about them. So I called an expert. So I'm Phil Rosen, and I'm a research scientist in natural resources and the environment at University of Arizona. I took Phil to the pond the next night, and we listened. But all we heard was silence. The pond looked a lot smaller. We found tadpoles in the water, but no toads. So I tried to explain the sound to him. Yeah, it sounded like... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like that. Yeah. Bill was pretty sure that I'd heard couches, spadefoot toads. I fully expected it to be nothing but couches, spadefoot, because of their ability to use such short-lived water. They're uniquely explosive breeders with very uh, short tadpole stages. He told me the toads spend most of their lives underground, emerging each summer for maybe only a few nights of frantic feeding and breeding. Their eggs hatch within hours, and only seven or eight days later the tadpoles become toads. It's the fastest metamorphosing species here, probably one of the fastest in the world. I thought Phil would be really excited to find prime toad breeding habitat in the middle of the city, 
but he wasn't very excited at all. He told me that the water in the pond probably wouldn't last long enough for the tadpoles to turn into toads. This basin that we're standing next to is designed to uh, dry itself within three days. Too bad because it is like an ecological trap because it just seems really good for them, but it's, <laughs> it's an attractive nuisance for them, basically. It brings them in to breed in a place they can't survive. Tucson's building codes require all businesses to capture their runoff so it won't contribute to flooding, and then sink the water into the ground quickly so it won't breed mosquitoes. Here's Phil Rosen again. You know, this, this sort of thing worries me because it exemplifies the ability and, and the, the tendency of people to just keep modifying the environment and making it more and more perfect for people. Yeah, unfortunately, there's less tendency for there to be little corners where water lasts for two or three or four weeks. And uh, so I suspect that there's an ongoing, very steady decline of these species throughout most of the city. Now, you wouldn't think mosquitoes would be a big problem in the southwest. Tucson gets less than 12 inches of rain a year, but over half of it falls during what people around here call the monsoon season, in July, August, and September. It floods the streets and forms temporary pools all over the city. And when the water comes, so do the mosquitoes. Mosquitoes really just need water and a warm blood source in order to thrive. And so we do have that in Tucson, especially during the times of our monsoon where we have a lot of rain. That's Dr. Michael Lacoba. He's the head of epidemiology at the county health department. Majority of the time, the mosquitoes we have, they're just a nuisance. But since 2004, uh, we had our first case of West Nile virus here. Uh, the number of cases uh, spiked one year to about 40 cases, but usually we will see about 10 to 20 cases a year. So what if we want toads in our neighborhood, but not mosquitoes? According to Phil Rosen, it's possible to have one without the other. If a, a pond, let's say like this one, lasted on average for two to three months, it would be so full of predatory crustaceans as well as insects that it wouldn't really produce any mosquitoes. To prove his point, he took me to a nearby drainage basin in a neighborhood squeezed between the freeway and the dry Santa Cruz riverbed. The basin was dammed up at one end with sediment and old tires, and its concrete sides were covered with graffiti. It was not a pretty sight, but it was full of toads. So this is a highly engineered concrete drainage outlet, and the mouth of it is blocked by flood debris, and so it's formed a pretty deep pool. And right now there are two species of true toads breeding in it. Those loud ones are Great Plains toads, and the more musical trill are red-spotted toads. We climb down to the water, and Phil pointed out all the tiny animals that eat mosquito larvae. I'm interested in the invertebrates here. There's all kinds of little beetles swimming around here whose larvae will eat mosquitoes. There's a tadpole shrimp here. There's quite a few of them. I'm trying to see if there's any mosquito larvae. Because everyone would sort of expect there to be tons of mosquito larvae in a place like this, making it a public health nuisance. But with this number of aquatic invertebrates, mosquitoes might have a very hard time surviving in here, and, and I'm not seeing any. The county health department here deals with mosquitoes by either eliminating standing water or treating it with a larvicide. Jeff Terrell manages the vector control program for the department. 
Well, larvicide we use, it's usually like a BTI, what they call a BTI, which is a bacteria. Um, we do use a larvicide oil, which is more of a mineral oil with a surfactant that spreads over the water and keeps it, you know, keeps the larvae from break, breaking the water surface and breathing so they drown. Both BTI and mineral oil, if used correctly, are generally considered safe for toads and other vertebrates. But at least one study showed that BTI might sometimes target insects it's not supposed to. And the oil kills several of the aquatic invertebrates that serve as natural pest control. Phil Rosen suspects that the oil isn't good for tadpoles either. He's been researching alternative solutions, and local officials have been open to his ideas. He's been working with them to design experimental pools of longer-standing water that use invertebrate biodiversity to control mosquitoes. So I've been working to develop that into a kind of an art form because I completely sympathize with people not wanting to live around lots of mosquitoes. He believes that in the long run, his solution, though more complicated, will be the best one. You know, if we simplify our environment, we're going to end up with just the things that we can't deal with, diseases and vectors and things like that. And we'll either have to re-engineer everything so there's zero standing water, or we'll have to try and live with the biodiversity and turn it to our ends and let the kids growing up have something interesting to grow up with. I went back to the pond in my neighborhood a few days later, and as Phil had predicted, all of the water was gone. Birds were pecking at the muck. I guess it wasn't a good year for the couches spadefoots of downtown Tucson. But maybe someday this pond will be re-engineered and stocked with the right kinds of invertebrates, which will allow us to have the best of both worlds. A neighborhood that's rich with biodiversity and singing toads and not too many mosquitoes. For Living on Earth, I'm Sarah Bromer in Tucson. Armchair adventurers and nature enthusiasts alike, National Geographic magazine has been essential reading for generations. And in its October issue, the magazine is celebrating its 125th anniversary and revisiting some of its most iconic photographs. That haunting image of a young Afghani refugee girl is on the cover. Sarah Lean is the magazine's director of photography and joins me now to talk about the role of pictures in telling the National Geographic Society's stories. The first issue in 1888 was pretty much like a a little pamphlet almost. It was, um, you know, started as a scientific journal that reported back from explorers and scientists and that were sent out into the field. So it was just only text at the very beginning. I think it was the following year that they had a map. But it wasn't until really about 1904 that we started really using photographs. There was an article that didn't come through and they had some pages to fill. And the president of the society had this set of images from Tibet. And they decided to publish those photographs. So it was kind of the first picture story and first series of images ever published. And some people were shocked and dismayed and thought it was just the end of everything. Now... Of course, today, National Geographic photographers are well known to be, well, let's call them intrepid. You know, they'll do anything for a photo, come home with frost bites or mosquito bites. 
But I imagine those early days of the magazine must have been even tougher without the lightweight equipment that we have today. Yes, those early days were much more like an expedition where they would go with the whole team. There's some famous photographs of uh, Joseph Rock, who was an early explorer in China, and he would bring like even like a bathtub. They would bring all kinds of stuff, you know, it would be like, you know, uh, 50 porters carrying things. Of course, now it's much, much different. Well, let's talk about a few of the photographs that you feature in your 125th anniversary issue. Sure. You have a segment that features North Korea. There's a picture in this layout that just jumps out. It shows a blackout in Pyongyang, North Korea's capital, but one thing remains illuminated. Would you describe that picture for our listeners, please? This is a a really wonderful image. It's very blue. You're looking out across the city from another tall building, and it's all looks dark, like you say, like a blackout, except there is just one thing illuminated, which is portraits of Kim Jong-il and Kim Jong-sun, the former leader and current leaders of North Korea. And it's just this very eerie-looking scene, but quite beautiful at the same time, very moody. I really like that picture. I'm glad you pointed that one out. There's another theme of this this, uh, special edition, your anniversary edition of National Geographic, and that theme is relate. And I'd like to call attention to a really striking image in that segment. It's a couple in Afghanistan on their wedding day. The groom is 40, the bride but 11, And the caption says close to half of Afghan girls marry before they're 18, but I think this has to be a classic case of a picture being worth a thousand words. Yes, um, Stephanie Sinclair, who took that image, she has been working on the issue of, of child brides all over the world for a number of years. This particular image I find to be almost chilling when you look at it, this adorable little girl trying to imagine her being married to this guy. You say he's 40, but he looks like older than 40. He's beard and kind of craggy, but this is the custom there. You know, photography can help you relate and connect to other people and to get you to care about things. And I think once you start getting people to care about things, you can get them to get involved and, you know, maybe even help change the world. And I think that's one of, definitely one of Stephanie these missions. We're just about done, but of course I have to ask you about, uh, you have this chart in here that you call the naked truth. I knew this. I knew this was was going to be this. (laughs) And let me read the text next to it. It says, everybody always mentions the nudity in National Geographic. For this special issue on photography, we figured we should mention it too and document how much the magazine is actually published. And you have these charts going back uh, looks like sometime in the 1890s, you publish your first bare-breasted photo. You show the issue that had the most sometime in 1912. Um, what about this? Well, as a photographer, you go out and you, you know, say you're with National Geographic magazine, and two things always get said. Oh, we have a basement full of those at home. And the other thing that would get said often, mostly by guys, is I saw my first bare-breasted woman in National Geographic. And it was just kind of like, oh, there it is. And it was like sort of we were kind of connected with that. Like this was where people first saw sort of naked women. And when we were brainstorming ideas for the issue, I said, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's find out actually how many times this has really happened and find that number. So 
there was some poor soul who went through 125 years of National Geographic magazines and counted them. And we came up with that 529 number. Now, today, almost everybody has a pretty decent camera right on their phone, uh, with them all, all the time, practically. What do you see as the role of everyday folks documenting the world now? I'm very excited about it. I mean, you know, I'm I'm one of those people. You know, I'm photographing with my phone all the time and, you know, posting to my Instagram feed. And we have a really robust uh, Instagram feed ourselves. It's about 2.7 million people follow the Nat Geo Instagram feed. It's just an exciting time for photography in general. Sarah Lean is the Director of Photography for National Geographic. Thanks so much for taking this time. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And keep on taking those pictures. We will. Coming up, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, a new book from a leading U.S. climate change researcher who found himself on the barricades. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Michael Mann is a professor of meteorology at Penn State University and was a lead author of the third assessment of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. His career has focused on quantifying the connection between human-related greenhouse gas emissions and a warming planet. In 2009, he found himself at the center of a controversy that came to be known as ClimateGate, when the emails of a number of scientists were hacked. Climate skeptics then selectively quoted the emails in attempts to discredit the scientists. Michael Mann was a major target, and now he's written a book about that experience. It's titled The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. He says this wasn't part of the career he planned. Well, you know, I started out as a science nerd who simply wanted to be in the lab, at my computer, analyzing data, working on interesting problems. The last thing I expected uh, was that my interest in science would lead me into the center of this raging societal debate about human-caused climate change. So in your early days as a scientist, you came up with something that's known as the hockey stick graph. What exactly is the hockey stick? Well, we only have about a century of widespread thermometer measurements around the world. So we know the globe is warmed by a little more than a degree Fahrenheit, but we don't know how unusual that sort of warming might be in a longer-term context without turning to other sources of information, so-called proxy records like tree rings, ice cores, corals. Um, And so what my co-authors and I did back in the late 1990s was to take all of the information available in these natural archives and use them to reconstruct the climate back into the more distant past. And what we found was that the recent warming uh, was unprecedented as far back as we could go, which was a thousand years at the time. And the shape of the curve, which sort of shows a 
long-term cooling trend from the medieval era into the depths of the Little Ice Age, followed by this anomalous spike of the past two centuries, sort of resembles a well-known sports implement, uh, a hockey stick. And the key take-home message from this graphic is that that modern spike has no precedent as far back as we can go. And by inference, it probably has something to do with what we human beings are doing. Um, it became an icon in the climate change debate, and I almost instantly found myself a target for those seeking to discredit the science of climate change. Well, of course, you know, hockey is a very competitive and uh, body-checking sport. <laughs> uh, you know, um, if you want to keep your front teeth, you probably don't want to play hockey. Well, that's right. I've taken a, a few body checks um, in my time, but I've given back a few. I was initially quite reluctant to get into the fray, but I had no choice because I was being subject to attacks. There were pretty large forces out there looking to discredit me, and so I decided I needed to fight back against that, and the only way to do that was to jump into the fray to become involved in sort of the, the larger public debate over human-caused climate change. And uh, ultimately, I've embraced that role. I can think of no uh, greater calling than to be in a position to inform, you know, what may be the greatest societal challenge we human beings have yet faced. Now, the incident that came to be known as Climate Gate, uh, in that incident, your emails were hacked just before the U.N. climate uh, negotiations in Copenhagen back in 2009. Right. How did you find out, and, and what happened? Sure. So it was actually a criminal theft of emails uh, from a university email server in the U.K., and uh, hackers broke into this server, stole thousands of emails, and then what they did was particularly pernicious. They combed through those emails, and they cherry-picked individual words and phrases and took them out of context and plastered them up all over the Internet, out of context, to try to make it sound like scientists had been fudging the data. Uh, for instance? So, for example, um, in one email, a colleague of mine refers to a trick that uh, he used in, in a graph that he was preparing. And to the outside world, it's easy to try to make that sound um, nefarious, right? Oh, these scientists are playing tricks on you, when in fact, if you're a scientist or a mathematician, you know that what a trick is, is a clever approach to solving a problem, like a trick of the trade. Um, here's the trick to solving that problem. And uh, the journal Nature at the time editorialized about how ridiculous it was that these, um, you know, that the critics were taking uh, perfectly innocuous words that are part of the scientific lingo and intentionally trying to mislead the public into thinking that it called into question the science. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a coincidence that this happened in the lead-up to the uh, Copenhagen summit of December 2009, which was the first opportunity for meaningful progress in dealing with climate change in years. And it isn't coincidental that the various media organizations and groups that were promoting these false claims about what the emails supposedly showed were typically associated with fossil fuel front groups, groups like uh, the Coke Industries, the Koch Brothers, uh, the SCAFE Foundations, fossil fuel industry front groups like the Heartland Institute. There was this sort of echo chamber of industry-funded climate change denial that promoted these 
false, these fake allegations against scientists onto the TV screens of, you know, the major news networks. Um, and it was all an effort to derail the Copenhagen summit of uh, December 2009. Now, you know, several years later, there have been, I think, nine different investigations in the UK and the US, including the National Science Foundation Inspector General, NOAA's in, uh, the Department of Commerce uh, Inspector General. They have all come to the conclusion that these emails did not establish any impropriety on the part of the scientists. And ironically, the only wrongdoing here at all was the criminal theft of those emails in the first place. Right after uh, your emails and those of other scientists were, were hacked, uh, not long after Senator James Imhoff, a Republican from Oklahoma, created a list of, what, some 17 scientists that he believes should be prosecuted for perpetrating the hoax of climate change as evidenced by those emails. What was your reaction to that? Yeah, I'm proud to say I was on that list, along with the Presidential Medal of Science recipient, Susan Solomon. So these completely outrageous and false allegations that grew out of the stolen emails were used by the usual suspects, like James Inhofe, who happens to be one of the largest recipients in the U.S. Senate of fossil fuel money. It was used as an excuse to pursue a new round of attacks aimed at discrediting uh, climate science and discrediting climate scientists. Uh, that was soon followed by an effort by the newly minted Attorney General of uh, Virginia, uh, Ken Cuccinelli, who uh, tried to issue a subpoena against the University of Virginia to demand all of my personal emails from the time that I was at the University of Virginia. Um, and it was clearly part of this concerted effort to try to find something that they could use to discredit me, to discredit the science, to discredit the hockey stick. Fortunately, once again, there were uh, people on both sides of the political aisle, uh, institutions, major institutions, scientific institutions, um, editorial boards that strongly denounced uh, what they saw as a transparent effort to intimidate scientists whose findings might not be convenient to the special interests that uh, fund Ken Cuccinelli's campaigns. So what do polls today show in terms of public opinion and the legitimacy of the scientific concern about climate change? Public acceptance of you know, the basic reality of climate change, the fact that the uh, Earth is warming and the fact that it has to do with human activity is as high as it's ever been. And that's despite the concerted attacks against the science. Um, and I think that's in part because people are actually seeing climate change now with their own two eyes. You know, we are seeing the impacts of climate change collectively in various types of more extreme weather, that uh, terrible flooding event that we just saw out in Boulder. Almost certainly that had a climate change component to it. Uh, Sandy, Hurricane Sandy, devastating meteorological event, almost certainly had a climate change component to it. So people are seeing the effects of climate change directly. And so I think it becomes less and less credible when, you know, the industry-funded talking heads continue to denounce climate change as a hoax. Unfortunately, there is still a large gulf between the public acceptance of the science, you know, maybe at its highest in the range of 70% of the public accept that the globe is warming, and maybe only 50 to 55% accept that it's due to human activity. And if you look at what the scientific literature says it's 97%. 97% of experts in this field recognize 
that the globe is warming and it's due to human activity. So we have this huge gulf between 97% of the scientists and maybe 55% of the public. That gulf exists because there has been a hundreds of millions of dollar disinformation campaign by fossil fuel interests to confuse the public about what the science has to say. Uh, Professor, before you go, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, a group that you worked with uh, a number of years ago, came out with their latest report recently, their fifth assessment. Uh, That shows an even more clear link between greenhouse gas emissions and and climate uh, disruption. Can you tell me about that? Sure, I'd be happy to. They've upped the confidence level from very likely to extremely likely. Scientists are, you know, are willing to say that something is extremely likely, very rarely, that's a very high degree of confidence, extremely likely that most of the warming of the past half century is due to increased greenhouse gas concentrations. And moreover, that the associated melting of ice, the rise of global sea level, and the increase in various types of extreme weather events can be tied to that human-caused warming. Now, given what's happened to you, uh, as a scientist who started off to just be a scientist, what advice do you have for a young scientist entering this field? Uh, that's a great question. One of my greatest fears is that the attacks against the scientists might dissuade young scientists from going into this field. Fortunately, I think the attacks have backfired. Um, I think what they've done is to raise awareness, especially among the younger generation, a generation that's very engaged in outreach and communication, that grew up with social media. And they're very engaged, and they like communicating, and they see a role now here as a scientist to be directly involved in the effort to communicate your science and to fight back against uh, efforts by others to confuse the public about the science. That's one of the reasons I'm so optimistic that we will get past this current impasse that we have with our, you know, with our politics about dealing with this problem in good faith, that in the near future we will see considerable progress as that younger generation becomes more and more involved in the discussion and in the policy process. Penn State Professor Michael Mann's new book is called The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, Dispatches from the Front Lines. Thanks so much, Professor. Thank you. It was my pleasure. There are some memories that won't let us go, it seems. And then there are other memories that are all about letting go. Here's writer Rod Clark. Children are playing hide-and-seek in the old limestone quarry at the edge of the village where I grew up. I hear them as I walk, their voices ringing high and clear, echoing off the high stone walls among the mysterious trees. Crows complain... Squirrels scold the invaders from the safety of green branches, and suddenly I am carried back to summer days in the 50s when my brothers and I played scatter and capture the flag on the two wooded levels of the quarry. Remembering how we crept among the sumac and the shadows of boulders, how honeysuckle perfumed the air, how once I saw a possum hanging by its tail in the cool shade of a catalpa. And I remember how we named the secret places of our playground, 
Pirate's Path, Lover's Leap, Dead Man's Cave, and most marvelous of all, Cool Cave, which possessed in its depths a limestone nook where you could keep a bottle of Coke cold even in the heat of summer. And as I ascend the path to the uppermost ridge to look down on a world mapped by children, some of whom are no longer alive, a small boy pops out of the brush in front of me, his eyes wide, burrs tangled in his hair. Are there any pirates down there? He demands breathlessly. But I am no longer of his world and cannot answer him. Without waiting for a reply, he plunges into the green realm below. I hear the rapid patter of his feet descending to the second level, punctuated with improbable leaps and bounds, and suddenly I realize what it is I have been seeking when I make this pilgrimage to the old quarry. Because it is my childhood that is racing away from me down the steep pathway among the mysterious trees. Rod Clark lives and writes in Cambridge, Wisconsin. He's the editor and publisher of Rosebud Magazine, and he took some pictures of the old quarry. They're on our website, LOE.org. We leave you this week with writer Mark Seth Lender and recordings he captured of hummingbirds in Madeira Canyon, Arizona. The thrumming of the tiny hummer's wings as they dart from flower to flower and hover to gather nectar is punctuated by the morning chorus of other birds, a distant white-winged dove, and the occasional insect. Mark Seth Lender made this recording this summer at about 6 in the morning. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Andrew Keyes, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms www.redtomato.org This is PRI, Public Radio International.
RI Public Radio International.